This is KJZZ, your news and information station. On air, online, and on your phone, I'm Tiara Vianne. Let's look now at this week's stories you don't want to miss. the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of May 29th, 2023. Arizona will stop approving some development projects in areas where groundwater would be the only water source. As Catherine Davis-Young reports, the announcement comes after a new report projects shortfalls in water supply in the Phoenix area. To build a new home in most of Arizona, developers must prove 100 years of assured water supply. But a new study by the Arizona Department of Water Resources shows groundwater in the Phoenix area will be 4% short of demand within a century. Governor Katie Hobbs says that means the state can't continue approving new development where groundwater is the only option. But she says that doesn't mean an end to all growth. So Phoenix has a designated assured water supply. This is not going to affect affect any growth in Phoenix. This is not going to affect existing homeowners, existing businesses. She also says more than 80,000 projects that have already been approved will not be canceled. Hobbs says this plan is not an indication that the state is running out of water, but a necessary step towards sustainability. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And now the science of food. Host Phil Latzman introduces this next story. Our recent article in the Dallas-based D Magazine addressed the gradual deheating of jalapeno peppers in recent years. The piece points to consumer taste, a heartier fruit for shipping, and larger virus-free peppers as a cause. But ultimately, most jalapenos go to processors for canning, and they want mild peppers so they can add heat to them later. This phenomenon did not go unacknowledged by our staff, so we invited Ken Sweat to talk about it with us. Sweat is professor at the School of Mathematical and Natural Sciences at ASU, and he's done extensive research into the heat levels of hot peppers. Lauren Gilger sat down with Sweat and a plate full of jalapenos, some store-bought, some homegrown, in executive producer Amy Silverman's garden. We have two different jalapeno peppers here, one from the grocery store and one from my executive producer's garden. They look very different, first of all. Like the grocery store pepper is giant and green and (laughs) shiny, right? And my executive producer's pepper from her garden is pretty small, a little bit dry, and mostly red by now, which happens to peppers, I know, from growing them in the garden after a while. Um, So we've got... A little experiment let's do. (laughs) And just to talk about whether or not these peppers have changed over the years and and what happens to us when we eat one. So which one do you want to start with? I I say – I, I think I wanted to say start with the grocery store, but I'm like, no, let's let's do the executive director. Let's let's do okay. the homegrown. Okay, let's start with Amy's pepper here. Go. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. It's good. But the spice hadn't hit me yet. Mm. <laughs> That's really mild. That is really mild. It's super mild, yeah. It's kind of sweet. It almost tastes bell peppery to me. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, you know, uh, as, as all of your hardcore pepper aficionados will tell you, a bell pepper is just a poorly inbred and very bad chili pepper. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're all they're all bred from the same the same plant. So yeah, in fact, there's even a strain of jalapenos called Fooled You, which look like jalapenos <laughs> but have almost no capsaicin in them. So almost no capsaicin, probably in this one. No, no, that was that was very mild. That was super mild. Shockingly pepper. mild. Yeah, which can happen though with jalapenos, right? Like it, it can it does happen. Seem to be variable. It can happen. So the homegrown pepper, not that spicy, but that could no. happen for various yes. reasons. All right, yes. let's try our store-bought pepper. Okay, here. The all big, right. Juicy one. 
Oh, there's some spice hitting me. But I also ate the seeds. <laughs> it's warmer. Yeah. It's definitely got some spice to it. But less flavor to it, I think, in general, right? Oh, certainly less of a flavor More profile. Watery. And He's taking a drink of water. <laughs> oh, my tongue is starting mm. to burn. Ooh, yeah, that's a nice... More, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice, mild one. The... um. The flavor profile you probably notice, as, as you were alluding to, the, the homegrown one is orange because it was ripened. I mean, literally, these green ones aren't ripe. Interesting. So a jalapeno isn't naturally green? Like a ripe jalapeno would be red? Right, right. A tomato is naturally green, sure. but you don't eat it at that point. That's so interesting. You let it go red. You know, it's cheaper for the farmer because they can get those out and to the market sooner, so mm-hmm. it's less cost for them. Mm-hmm. That's why when you go to your grocery store, your green rail peppers are always cheaper than the yellow and the red and the oranges yeah, yeah. because they're basically immature. Um. Yeah, that is some nice spice to that one. It I'm got impressed. A spicy. My tongue is burning. I'm impressed. Here. It's not bad. Okay, so tell me what is happening, like physiologically, <clears throat> that makes us kind of have this burning sensation that makes it hurt <laughs> a little bit when you eat a pepper well, that is spicy. First, what happens is, and and this is one of the reasons why I really liked working with capsaicin as a teaching tool, mm-hmm. because I, I I literally in the story I'm about to tell you. I can actually pull a lesson from the entirety of the first year general biology course. So let's start with what happens at the cellular level. Yeah. The way nerve cells communicate information, like like sense pain, if you will, is basically change voltage across a membrane. And the way they do that is they open up a pore, they open up a channel, mm-hmm. and they allow certain ions to come across it. The the particular protein we're talking about here is called the TRP1 receptor. Mm-hmm. And it generally opens or closed bases on heat damage. But for some reason, the capsaicin molecule tricks it Mm. and actually causes it to open, causes the calcium ions then to flood across the cell membrane, changing the potential and causing the nerve to signal that there is fire there. (laughs) Actual fire. Yes, that there is actual (laughs) fire there. You start to sweat, Mm -hmm. right? You start to think, I need to cool this off and reach for water. And then the (laughs) horrible, horrible part about that, it doesn't work. No, I just had a drink of water. It did not help at all. It makes it worse. (laughs) And, and that's because the capsaicinoids are all highly what the what the organic chemists call hydrophobic compounds. Uh. That's why uh, full fat milk, cheese, or the like, something that has an oil to it is best. All of that is, interestingly enough, only happening in mammals. Huh. So one of the other reasons we think capsaicinoids evolved is is something that the scientists refer to as directed deterrence, that the, the pepper is trying to get mammals not to eat it, but some other creature, and in this case, birds, to eat it. Yeah. And the reasoning is pretty simple. When a mammal, like a rodent, eats a pepper, it will actually grind up and digest the seeds, and oh. the plant doesn't want that, right? The plant's literally making a fruit to bribe an animal to take their child away mm-hmm. so that, that they don't have to compete with it when they raise it. <laughs> Birds, on the other hand, if they eat peppers, the seeds come through intact. That is so interesting. So there's a real sort of almost evolutionary reason that plants well, are spicy sometimes. Uh, well, there's uh, of course there's an evolutionary reason. Yeah. Everything has yeah. an evolutionary reason. <laughs> and and you hit on it's not just it's not just spicy. It's it's everything about a plant. So if animals' big thing is we can move, that's mm-hmm. our big evolutionary advantage. For plants, it's their biochemists. Mm-hmm. So they're already making molecules. They're taking sunlight and carbon dioxide and water and making sugar and oxygen. But they've also evolved all of these interesting ways to make all the other parts of that. Hmm. 
So I want to take this theory to you, which I don't think is, you know, a cut and dry one, that it seems to some people, in the, especially the food world, that jalapenos have become less spicy over the years for various reasons. Do you think there's any, any you know, real reason to believe that? So I would think that, yes, they, they are becoming less spicy. And there's a, there's a number of different reasons why we, we could talk about. I think first and foremost, when you're talking about making a salsa for the American palate, unfortunately... It's like you have to play to the lowest common denominator. You actually have to play to the people who are are most sensitive to spicy food. And it makes sense to me as well that that the major manufacturers, the major food uh, uh, companies that are making salsas want to have consistency. Mm. So what what we did is uh, myself and and some colleagues of mine at ASU West looked at variability in three different peppers back in, uh, we published our work in 2016. And, And what we actually found, an average in jalapenos of just over 21,000 Scoville heat units. You go look up today on how hot a jalapeno could be. I was looking online earlier this morning, and it's around 8,000 oh, wow. is what I'm seeing in some of the popular literature. And so it, I, I question how that happened, <laughs> but that seems like that, yes, they have been reduced in spiciness, and, and I think that's really unfortunate. So mm-hmm. I think... One of the things that's so interesting about the discussion around a jalapeno pepper, take your drink of water if you need it, <laughs> my mouth is still spicy, um, is that it's so cultural here. Like, especially in the Southwest, like a jalapeno pepper is like this thing that we all relate to, especially certain cultures really relate to. And I wonder, like, if it's grown in these ways that are more homogenous and they're less predictable and they're less spicy, like, what do we lose if we lose that spice? Well, I mean... You lose a lot. One of the really things that I found really neat in my research on peppers, there's a whole range of cuisine going from, from you know, here in Arizona all the way to the South Pole. And all of these different cultures have used these spicy foods. And now for for us to have taken it and, and I don't know, uh, you know, castrated it, uh, demoralized it, I mean, it, it, it actually kind of seems tragic. And it, it also, though, I would suggest will lead to probably people breeding more local strains of it. Mm. I mean, certainly if I, were a, a, if I were a chef here in the Valley, I would want to make sure I had a source of, of peppers that not only were consistent, but were, had the level of spiciness that I wanted to bring to my food. And so, yeah, we, we lose all of that when we homogenize these peppers and, and make them just, uh, you know, just a kind of tangy bell pepper. Yeah. Okay, so final question for you, and I think this is an important one. Why do people, including me, why do we like spicy food where they kind of hurt, right, when you eat them? That's the whole point. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think, I think too many of us are just masochistic. Uh. I, I honestly think, I mean, because think about it. This is what we have done with so many different foods, whether it is peppers, horseradish, mustards. In all of these cases, they have evolved as some sort of, you know, prevent insects, prevent fungi. They've evolved to, to, to hurt things. Mm. And what do we, homo sapiens, the intelligent one, what do we do? Oh, that hurts. Ah, oh, I got to do that again. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I, I just think in our heart we're masochists. <laughs> All right. Not a bad answer. Ken Sweat, teaching professor in the School of Mathematical and Natural Sciences at ASU's West Campus, joining us to talk about peppers. Ken, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for trying these peppers with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was wonderful. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news. 
A Phoenix council member opposed to using tax dollars on stadiums is now supporting a bid to host a major sporting event. From our downtown bureau, Christina Estes reports. Councilman Jim Waring doesn't think Phoenix should be in the business of building or subsidizing stadiums and arenas. But once you go down that crazy path, which this council did a few years ago, uh, you have to maximize the use of the facility. In 2019, the council approved spending $150 million on initial infrastructure improvements at the city-owned facility where the Phoenix Suns and Mercury play basketball. On Wednesday, the council unanimously approved a resolution requested by the Suns and Mercury. It authorizes the city's participation in the team's bid to host the women's NBA All-Star Game next year, along with the men's All-Star Game in 2025 or 26. If Phoenix is chosen, games and fan events will be held downtown. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. Let's look at how the 988 suicide hotline is doing almost a year into the service. Here's the show co-host Mark Brody with Justin Chase, president and CEO of Solari Crisis and Human Services. Yeah, since 988 has gone live, uh, it has been almost a year. We're seeing lots of volume. Uh, The volume is going up for the amount of callers that are calling in. What we're finding is people are in need that had not called before are now feeling more comfortable reaching out for help for the first time. So that's been a a, a huge benefit and uh, progress, um, exactly why 988's in existence. I don't know if you had expectations, if you had a sense of what to expect before it went live, but I'm curious how what you're seeing now maybe relates to kind of how you thought it might go. Yeah, we were didn't really have good statistics on what the anticipated volume would be for 988. We were hoping for uh, anywhere from 25 to 50 percent increases, and we landed at 40 percent increase in call volume. Um in the months following the launch of 988. So right in line with what we had in, um, where we were prepared and the capacity that we had put the staffing in place to be able to support that type of an increase um, was right in the sweet spot of, of where we were thinking. What kinds of calls have you been getting? I mean, what was that kind of what you expected in terms of the kinds of things that, that people were going through that they needed help with? Yeah, we're seeing, we're, we're continuing to see um, the nature of the calls being uh, primarily around self-harm, uh, thoughts of suicide or harming yourself um, as being the top reason that people are calling. We have a lot of care coordination, uh, social concerns, especially with our younger uh, population contacting the crisis line in 988 or having social concerns and issues at school or with family. Uh, so we're working through those thoughts of depression, bouts of, of anxiety that's uh, beyond what individuals can manage. So um, not all that different from what we had seen through the general crisis lines before, but just at a higher at a higher volume. And we are seeing a bit of an increase in acuity. The severity of the calls are coming in uh, more severe than they had been prior to. Any sense as to why that might be? You know, we think a lot of it has to do coming out of the pandemic. People are reaching out for help more often. And so we don't really think that the, the thoughts of harm and uh, the struggles are, are necessarily too much worse than they had been before. People are just more comfortable reaching out for help. Yeah, I was going to ask if you think that there are more people maybe who are struggling with some of these these issues now than before, or maybe they're just more comfortable to reach out or acknowledge that 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 they have them. It sounds like it's more the latter to you. I'd say it's a it's a mix. So people are more comfortable reaching out for help, which which is true. Interesting statistics regarding. 
um, especially around suicidal thoughts, individuals in their middle aged going from early 20s uh, to about 64, the suicidal thoughts have actually dropped for that population. Hmm. But we've seen significant increases in self-harm and thoughts of suicide for individuals over 65 and under the age of 15. Wow. So when you look at the net, it looks like the numbers are flat. We're actually seeing a spike at the older and younger age demographics and a drop in the middle. What you just said about people under 15 is is terrifying. It is. It is. The post-pandemic impact, the social struggles that individuals are facing, the increase in social media, I think all are combining factors impacting uh, our youth right now. Yeah. And we're glad that they're reaching out for help, but it is alarming uh, at, at the increase there. Yeah. And, and safe to say that for you know all the people who are reaching out, there are probably still some number more who, who are not, who are still struggling with these kinds of issues. Absolutely. So you mentioned that you had staffed up a bit before this line went live. How many people did you add? Like what, what did that, that staffing up process look like? Yeah, so we added almost 30 additional staff to our crisis line um, just on the Solari side. And then Impact La Frontera also increased their staffing uh, a large number as well to be prepared to, to take on that increased volume. Do you find that that's uh, the right number for you? Right now, I think we are at the right level for staffing. Um, what's unique with 2023 is that the larger scale marketing campaigns are going to be launching. So from the, the national level, there was kind of a soft launch for 988. Um, and now we're going to see a massive increase in, in marketing for it. And so that's really where the unknown of, of what the next round of, of volume increases are going to be. We feel we can weather another 30 to 40% increases uh, without too much um, too many challenges, but um, anything above that we're going to be uh, prepared for and uh, ramping up for. Do you have the resources to hire more staff if you need to? Uh, thankfully to our, our, our funding partners and uh, the strength of the organization, we do feel that we're uh, equipped to, to increase our staffing if needed. Uh, the workforce is, is very challenging right now to hire, uh, especially the folks that want to do crisis work. It um, takes a really special individual um, staff are so dedicated to helping in so many different ways and, and, and really uh, giving of themselves and their, um, their hearts to this work is so critical. So finding folks that, that are really passionate about the work can be a little difficult for us, but uh, we've, we've done good so far. For the calls that come in, is the goal to get somebody to a place where they are okay? Is it to try to refer them to other services? Like, I guess, how do you try to best help the, the folks who call in? What we're finding and you know, what we strive to do at Solari is to engage individuals and meet them where they're at. And we want to support them as much as we can within the community that they call home. And so we have a high success rate. 85% of the calls that come into the crisis line, we're actually able to reconcile the situation right there without any additional need for resources or supports. So we're able to tap into their natural support systems, their family, their friends. Uh, if they have a, a clinical team that they currently work with already, re-engaging with them and making sure that they're they're aware and can help support the individual. But beyond that, we're, we're really successful at keeping folks within the community that they call home. And then from there, uh, another percentage, uh, we're able to co coordinate with 
community providers that dispatch mobile crisis teams to go out into the community where individuals are, work with them face to face and identify uh, solutions to, again, help try and keep them in the community. Mobile teams keep 75% of the individuals they interact with uh, right at home within the community that, that they live. Uh, and then we can coordinate getting folks if they need to go to an inpatient level of care. We have crisis stabilization facilities in the community, detox facilities, uh, if individuals are in need at that level. Um, then we could also coordinate rarely, but on occasion with um, other first responders if there's an acute medical or public safety need. All right. That is Justin Chase, president and CEO of Solari Crisis and Human Services. Justin, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news, Arizona State University has announced plans to launch a new medical school. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd reports, it's part of an effort to address the state's growing health care needs. Arizona ranks near the bottom in many health system performance indicators. The state is 44th in access and affordability, 41 in prevention and treatment, and public health funding is 50 percent below the national average. During a meeting with the Arizona Board of Regents Thursday, ASU President Michael Crow announced the new School of Medicine and Advanced Medical Engineering. The graduates of this school, so enhanced by their dual educational outcome, an engineering outcome and a medical school outcome, will be able to add a mix to Arizona that will be beneficial to the ultimate design of the Arizona health system. It will integrate clinical medicine, biomedical science, and engineering. Two schools like that exist in the U.S., one at the University of Illinois and one at Texas A&M. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Tribal Resources, supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Last week, a Mojave County supervisor spoke against a proposed national monument spanning over one million acres of land surrounding the Grand Canyon. Greg Haney reports. Chairman of the Mojave County Board of Supervisors Travis Lingenfelter testified before a U.S. House Natural Resources subcommittee claiming such a monument would impact future economic growth in northern Arizona. According to Lingenfelter, 90% of the proposed Baj Nuajo Itekukveni National Monument land is already under Bureau of Land Management coverage. He pointed out that 42% of the state is owned by the federal government. Designating another 1.1 million acres as a national monument will further reduce private ownership and harm hardworking rural Americans within Arizona and Mojave County. The monument was proposed by the Grand Canyon Tribal Coalition to protect native lands and preserve the canyon's landscape. Greg Haney, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in Fronteras News. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has found that illegal fishing for an endangered species in Mexico's Gulf of California is undermining an international treaty. From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Kendall Blust reports that could lead the Biden administration to impose a trade embargo. Mexico's failure to stop poaching for a large endangered fish called the totoaba is impacting the survival of the world's most endangered marine mammal, the vaquita marina porpoise. And that diminishes the effectiveness of the CITES Treaty, according to a letter from U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland to top U.S. officials Friday. That finding comes after a 2014 petition and subsequent lawsuit by environmental groups. They asked the U.S. to use a law known as the Pelley Amendment to ban seafood imports from Mexico over its failure to protect the vaquita, which is nearing extinction with only an estimated eight left. Now the Biden administration must decide whether to impose a trade embargo or take other action against Mexico. Kendall Blust, KJ's Z News, Hermosillo. 
And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.